Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. The fun thing about being middle-aged is you get to give a lot of advice. Today's episode centres on the idea that it is critical to think about your relationship with money early in your career. If you want the freedom to do something you love, it helps if you have the financial means to support that choice. My guest is Lacey Filipich, the founder of Money School. Lacey graduated valedictorian from the University of Queensland with an honours degree in chemical engineering. In this episode, we talk about women and money and how future female leaders need to be good at understanding the financial drivers of their organisation. Lacey Filipich, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. I'm very excited to have you because we are going to talk about money. Um, I don't think I've ever done a podcast talking about money before. So let's start with your decision to launch Money School. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Helen. I love your work. Very excited to be talking about this topic with your audience because it has been life-changing for me and I hope it will be for those people. And the decision to launch Money School actually came out of realising that. I was in my late 20s. I'd had a quarter-life crisis, I'm going to claim, and I had stopped working so much. I was starting to work six months on, six months off, and my friends were all looking at me going, how come you can take all this time off, Lacey? We have to work. And I said, oh, well, what, what have you been doing with your money? You know, I, I'd been saving and I'd been investing and I had a nice big cache of savings sitting there to land on to keep me through these periods where I didn't want to work as well as investments that were paying me. And my friends were all like, well, we've got credit cards and we've got car loans. And we've got all these things that unfortunately meant that they couldn't stop working. They would have to keep working or they would be homeless or they would have to move back in with their parents. That kind of thing really terrified them. And that was the first time I realised that not everyone's parents taught them about money. I'd really been oblivious to the fact that I had won the ovarian lottery, that I had a mum who taught me about money. And I thought, gee, that's really unfair that all these people haven't learned about it. And that's where Money School came from, this decision to try and help people learn about money because it is life-changing. It's not the meaning of life, but once you've got it under control, it makes everything else easier. And so that's why I've been running Money School ever since. So 13 years on... How's it going? And do you recommend launching your own business? So as far as how it's going, it's very easy to get out of bed in the morning to do what I do because I see huge changes for people when I do it. So I haven't lost any of the excitement and the passion for it. But running a business is hard work. And I think I didn't appreciate how difficult it was when I started. And I think that's necessary, that certain level of naivety, right? (laughs) You don't want to know all the things. It's kind of like parenting as well. I'm glad they didn't put it all in the brochure. Um, So that I would say 
you should only run the business if you feel really motivated to. And I mean motivated over several years. It can't be a flash in the pan. can't be something that's just a fad for you because it will consume your life if you let it. And you need to be able to have enough passion to continue doing through all the boring hard stuff, which is part of running a business. There is some boring hard stuff. And let that joy and that excitement and the satisfaction of doing a good job motivate you. If you can do that, I would recommend running a business. I have loved it for being able to make my life work around work. The job that I had working in mining as an engineer was not conducive to raising a family at the time. It's gotten much better, but when I was starting to have kids, it was not easy. And so having my own business has given me a lot more flexibility. And also I don't have to answer to anybody. So I get to work on what I want to work on. (laughs) And so although what I work on has changed over time and my direction has changed with Money School over time, it's been an absolute joy to get to choose that myself. I couldn't agree more. So this is a leadership podcast. And I think to lead, people do need to be financially literate. Maybe not immediately, but eventually I think they do. Would you agree with that? And what advice have you got for women on how to become more financially literate? I 100% agree with you, Helen. It is mandatory. It's mandatory for everybody because personal finance and business finance actually aren't that dissimilar. And I think there's an entire industry that makes it look confusing. It's filled with jargon. It's no wonder we get overwhelmed when we look at it. But that's just because of how it's spoken about and the terminology particularly, and I'm sorry to pick on them, particularly that accountants use. (laughs) It's not made digestible. There's good reasons for that. What I'd encourage anyone who's feeling overwhelmed about looking at money, whether it's personal finance or business finance, just remember there's only like two rules and two measurements you have to look at. That is your in has to be bigger than your out. That's your cash flow statement, your profit and loss statement. In must be bigger than out over time. And then what you own has to be worth more than what you owe. So your assets have to be worth more than your debts. That's your balance sheet. That's the whole thing. Literally four totals. If you got through year five maths, you can do it. Don't let the jargon overwhelm you. Search for sources of information that make it simple, make it clear, remove that jargon, and you'll find that if you could get through year five maths, you'll be fine with any finance, personal or business. All right, so I'm leading a team in a mid-sized organization right now. I'm in the marketing department or I'm in public relations or I'm a project manager. I'm a long way from the, the running of the business and the financial aspect of the business. How do I get better at this? How do I start to pick up the jargon and more importantly, as you say, the knowledge? Mm. It's really important to understand that every department has a budget. You're paid for out of some money somewhere. There's money coming in from the work that you're doing because you're adding value. So even if it's on a small scale, getting to understand your department's budget, how they're thinking about the money and how they allocate it, what their priorities are, is probably a really good place to start no matter where you are in the business. And remember that if you're in a bigger company, they will publish their reports. And there's a good chance for your learning that you can go on to the internet portal or maybe there'll be some announcements if it's an ASX listed company. You can go and start digging into these things now. And there's no harm in asking questions. People love when you ask questions about their work, particularly accountants, because they get ignored a lot. So feel free if you're inquisitive about 
why have we made that spending decision or how do we prioritise that particular effort or that activity over this one? You can start to ask those questions. You'll start to understand what's going on under the bonnet behind scenes and that will help you make better understanding later on. You'll be able to understand the decisions that are made in the boardroom and in the C-suite and those flow on through the organisation. The same rationale applies. It's just the scale. So start small, get inquisitive, have a look at what you've got available and start asking as many questions as you can. Because if I understand you correctly, by understanding the business unit you're in, you, you already understand what you do. So understanding how the money flows around what you do should be quite an easy concept to get your head around. So that's a good starting point. But if I'm one of those people that is not financially literate and I don't, I'm not good with numbers and the jargon's killing me, is, is there anywhere I can sort of go just to speed up that process? I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) I think you'd have a lot of friends in that case. Helen would be going, I'm sorry, what is a cost of goods sold and what does this thing mean? And you look at a balance sheet or you look at a cash flow statement and everyone's like, what's EBITDA? Yeah, totally. That nomenclature is there for technical reasons. Okay, so very technical reasons that are to do with accounting and tax compliance and reporting. And we have to follow an accounting process. So it is important that we do categorise things correctly. The accountants are on the right track. If you're finding it really confusing, the best thing I can do is recommend drawing out on a piece of paper where the flows are. And there are some great diagrams online that get you to think about how the money actually flows and where things come out. And then, okay, well, if I take this bit out, the bit that's left over is what we call cost of goods sold or whatever it might be. So visual, I find, helps for people who are challenged with the numbers because the numbers, they do look baffling. When you're just looking at columns of spreadsheets (laughs) and going, I don't understand how that one goes from there to there. Trying to draw out just one month you know, grab one month's numbers, try and draw out where the numbers go. Ask someone in the organisation to do it with you that does have the experience in the accounting team. They probably have those diagrams. They just might not show them to you. And I would recommend doing lots of Googling. Now, there's some great sources that are quite reliable online. So if you're talking about personal finance, I'd always go to Money Smart. That's the government-backed one. And so you know you're not getting sold anything by them. And they've got great explanations for how things work that are very simplified in terms of the jargon. They've taken a lot of that out. Um, And of course, there's plenty of books that you can read that make it simpler and heaps of wonderful books written by Australian women that will make a lot more sense. Um, If you've had five minutes just Googling, look at the jargon, have a read of their books, you'll come out going, oh, it's actually that simple. Um, But don't let it put you off if you find it baffling the first few times. That's not abnormal. And as I said, there's an entire industry whose vested interest is to make it look complicated because then they have jobs. (laughs) It's like watching the first Matildas game and you've never watched soccer, right? It takes you a little while to kind of just get the rules of the game. But once you get the rules, you you don't understand how you never understood it. Um, All right. So I am in the team. I'm asking questions about how my business model is run or my business unit is run. What if I am the leader of the team and I've got a pretty good idea. I actually understand that my business unit needs to make more money than it spends and I'm across that bit. What is my obligation, do you think, to share that detail with my team? And is that a good thing to do? Because this is, this is quite a fraught question. Oh, you're exactly right that it is fraught. And it particularly, I guess there's not a blanket rule I can give you here about whether it is good or not, because it will depend on the industry you're in, 
the economic conditions and even the individual. And I'm going to preface this with one piece of really important information that I don't think we get to talk about enough, which is when someone is under personal financial stress, there are Q drops by 13 points. It's called poverty brain. And so if you've got an individual in front of you who is financially stressed, so let's say they've you know, recently changed their living arrangements because there's a child in the family, they've gone from two incomes to one, or they've separated, or someone's died, or you know, something dramatic has happened, there's a chance that if you talk to them about money stuff or even complex decision-making anywhere else, it's going to go over their heads and particularly might add to their anxiety. So I would read the individual rather than the team a little bit before I would leap in with that stuff. Having said that, I think there is never any harm in people understanding the rationale behind business decisions because the more we understand the process that we apply, the values that we apply, how we prioritise our resources and money being one of them, the better chance we have of being a valuable employee, making decisions that are consistent with those values and with those processes. So I think as a leader, it is good for you to communicate those things to your team because then when you've got to make tough decisions, when you've got to choose between project A and B or role A and B to recruit, uh, those sorts of things are a lot easier when people understand why. But if you dump it all on them at the time of the decision-making, it can be overwhelming. So building it up slowly over time, making it a small part of your regular meeting, like if you have a monthly meeting, make sure you talk about your department's budget and compliance to plan during that and analyse where it's gone wrong. It also builds some good discipline within your team because, of course, we get this sense from people sometimes that when you run your own business, you own everything so you really care about the money, but when you're an employee, you still need to care about the money. You still need to care about the overall business productivity and its ability to deliver value. And by doing the behind the scenes stuff, telling people about how we came to this decision and how well we're doing and, oh, we're struggling here and this is serious and if we don't fix it, it's going to have implications for how our business runs, can help them be part of the team, help them buy in and understand where that's coming from. I think it doesn't matter what level you're talking about. If you see an employee who has a commercial brain or some financial literacy, they always stand out. And I guess that's the message we're um, trying to give today. And I think, as I say, this is the first podcast we've given on this topic and I should do more. But there is real value in understanding this, this particular aspect of leadership because if you can start to master it, you will stand out, you will be more, more visible to your boss. And I think, Lacey, add real value to the, the knowledge and training and understanding of the people under you. What are you seeing at the moment in terms of the interest from women in being better at this stuff, whether it be as an employee or, or in just in terms of their personal finance? Are, are you sensing women are becoming increasingly interested and therefore independent? I do. I see women are coming to this in droves. And I think the pandemic is something to be grateful for as a silver lining for this. I think when everyone saw how quickly our finances can change and how uh, our reliance on an income and the ability to earn a wage is so important for people that haven't got some savings set aside, people that have debt, people that haven't reached goals that are really important to them, that really prioritised money for them. If it wasn't already an important part of their lives, it suddenly became that. So I'm saying absolute swathes of women coming to this subject. It's fantastic to see. And I think a lot of them historically have had 
taboos around talking around money. And that seems to be evaporating, which I am so excited about because the more we talk about this stuff, like we are on this podcast, the more people can skill up. And because of that crossover between how money works in a business and how it works in our personal lives, whatever they do in their personal lives to learn is paying off with their business acumen and vice versa. So I think it's this wonderful perpetuating spiral of knowledge that's starting to take off. And I really hope we're at a tipping point where it becomes universal. Lacey, when I'm mentoring people who are thinking about uh, what job they want to do and where they want to get to, I often say to them that I want them to go away and think about money and think about what it means to them. And by that, I mean, how much do I need? If if I'm just about to have a baby or I've got a young family and I'm concerned about house prices like everybody is, then money's going to take quite a different shape than if... I am living in a country town. I've never been that interested in money. I'm very happy working an uncomplicated life. And money is so not something that I care about or ever want to care about. And I think I think you do have different needs at different points in your career and you, should, you shouldn't sleepwalk into a money problem. Can I ask you, do you have similar conversations? And And how do you feel when you're having those conversations? Because I want to stress that money is not the point of life. And I think think you and I share a a similar philosophy. Yes, we absolutely do. And I do have a lot of these conversations. And I often hear them from very idealistic folks. Like, no, my life is simple. (laughs) And look, more power to you. But I also think it's generally pretty naive. There are very few people who will get through their life without a need for money. Most of us are going to have to pay for food, for a roof over our heads, uh, for transport, for clothes. Very few of us have enough just given to us from when we're young that we never need it again. So the reality is you're probably going to need it. And the time you need it, it's too late to start saving then. (laughs) When the proverbial hits the rotating blade is too late. I'm going to interrupt you there because I I think we all need it, but it's the need bit that's the interesting piece, right? How much do we need? Because we can all sit here and just pursue the next pay rise, the next pay rise until not get the skills to do the job well, but we get the next, we get the next job and we get the next pay rise. And that's the bit that I get concerned about. Absolutely. And I think there's this disconnect sometimes between understanding what need is and what want is. So most people, if you ask them, how much money do you need a year? They'd all say a little bit more than I currently have. (laughs) I just need a bit more, just a bit more and I'd be happy. When generally you'd actually be fine with a little bit less for most of us because we've probably got more than we need if we're earning a decent wage. Now I will make that premise that it has to be if you're earning a decent wage, there are people out there who don't have enough money. So people who are experienced poverty need more, definitely. But if you are at that point where you're earning a reasonable income and you're thinking, hey, this is enough. There's a few things you need to think about, which is what happens when the day comes when you can't. You might not be able to earn for several reasons. It might be something changes with your career, with the company you're working for. It might be a life change where you've got a a child coming along or you're caring for an elderly parent. You might get sick. Your partner might get sick. There are lots of unknowns in life. So for no other reason, you need to have an advanced plan, which includes some savings set aside to get you through emergencies. And hopefully some of the extra savings gets put into investing so that if the worst happens, you're okay. 
And it's a beautiful, naive experience, I think, to think that will never happen to you. And I remember the days of my 20s when I thought that would never happen to me. Trust me, it is coming one day and it doesn't telegraph itself. (laughs) You need to do something in advance for that risk management piece. And I think that is, if nothing else, that should hopefully motivate people to think, oh yeah, I do need to think ahead. And there will come a day when you can't work. There will. It's a fact of life. You're not going to be working till you die. That doesn't happen anymore. And we know that the pension is the poverty line in Australia. So if that sounds like fun and you're okay with it, then go right ahead. (laughs) But most people would want slightly more than that, especially with this experience of rising costs and housing insecurity at the moment. I think there are people on decent wages who are feeling insecure. So let that motivate you to do the risk of it. So that's the stick bit. (laughs) If I'm beating you with a stick saying, thou must do this. Then of course, you've got the dangling carrot, which is if you were to plan ahead with your money, and the sooner you start, the better, because then you can have lots of mistakes and it doesn't matter so much. The advantage might be that you get to a point where you get to choose whether you have to work. You know, if you're doing that saving and investing, then something comes along and you want to pursue it, you know, like an opportunity to travel or a career that is not lucrative. You've you've done this great job building up your, your career, but maybe it doesn't motivate you anymore and you want to switch, but the switch would cost you a lot and your living expenses would, would have to adjust. If you've set some money aside to get you through that and you've got some investing to supplement that income, then that makes that choice much easier. You don't want to have your dreams crushed just because you didn't think ahead about your money. (laughs) And so I think whether it's the stick or the carrot for you, have a think about what motivates you. But it's important, like you say, not to sleepwalk into it because by the time you hit those big life changes, those big either emergencies or exciting opportunities, you don't want to be hamstrung by the fact that you don't have enough cash to make sure that you, you, you can't take that decision. You really want that freedom, that opportunity and that choice. That's how I think about it. And as leaders, it's very good to have these conversations with your with your team, uh, your team members, particularly the young women, but I'm also of the view, Lacey, and I'm sure you've got opinions on this, that young men are not necessarily any better at it. They just, <laughs> we just assume they are. Because... No, they're not. Yes, you're exactly <laughs> right, Helen. And there's a lot of... Um, misconceptions in the media about this, that women are somehow worse with money. You might have seen the girl maths trend, which is very tongue in cheek, but is sometimes a bit condescending. And ladies, let me reassure you that it has been found and verified through several researches, uh, research efforts that women are actually better at investing. So don't buy it. Don't buy this whole, oh, it's, uh, you know, the women don't need to know about this or you're a woman, you'll be making frivolous spending decisions. It's absolutely not true. Anything that's culturally come through for you that says I'm bad with money or I'm bad with maths, that's just something that you've heard over the years that society's told you, please do whatever you can to get rid of that belief. And yes, talk to both your men and your women that are working for you. Make sure they're thinking about money because a financially secure employee is in your interests because they don't have that poverty brain affecting them. Yeah, I get really irritated by the women buy shoes and handbags. Men buy golf sticks and cars, you know. So, and these are wild generalizations, but I'm sure everybody understands what I'm saying. You know, that's right. We have things we like and we spend money on, but uh, it has been proven that women are better at investing. And I think, and I should have the research to hand, but I think it's proven that women are pretty good at starting businesses as well. We are. There's nothing about our uh, gender that affects how good we can be with money except for cultural expectations. And you're exactly right. We all choose to spend on some things that give us joy. It's just that some are perceived as being frivolous. And for some reason, we've branded shoes and handbags as frivolous. And I'm here to tell you, ladies, if that's your thing, you buy it. The point with all of it is, though, don't buy all the things, okay? So pick one or two things. So if you like watches, 
buy watches if you like handbags, buy handbags. Don't try and buy watches and handbags and clothes and the car and the golf clubs, okay? Because that's the recipe for getting into debt and for not getting ahead financially. Now you tell me. I wish I'd spoken to you earlier. <laughs> um, so what we're saying is get a handle on your personal finances because it insulates you against setbacks later in life and start to take more of an interest in the finances and the, and the, the in and out of your business unit or your company and um, everything will flow from there. Absolutely. And I can't say that enough. Please learn about it. It is in your interest. It will pay dividends, haha, for you throughout your life. So please get onto it. If you were to recommend one thing that people take away from this podcast, what would it be? So money is just a tool. You can't eat it. You can't sleep in it. You can't do anything with the actual physical cash except exchange it for things that have meaning and value for you. So if you have trouble connecting to the topic of money, if you're one of those people who's like, it's too hard, or uh, I don't need to worry about that, or I'm just going to, like, it's hopeless anyway. I'm just going to, like, ignore it. I guess this is for those people. When you're earning an income, you're trading your time and you'll never get that money back, right? You'll never get that time back. That is the point of spending that time to earn the wage is that you then get the income, which then supports your life, and then you get to do some fun things with it as well. So I want you to think of your ability to earn an income as an investment of your time, okay? And that means that if you waste your money, you're wasting your time. That money you spend at work gets frittered away. And because we don't want to waste our time, that time's never going to come back to us. You want to be as effective with your money as you can. You want it to deliver value for you. So if nothing else, if nothing else gets you excited about money or commits you to the idea of, I must learn about money, think of it that way. If I waste my money, I'm literally wasting the time I spend at work because I'm not getting any value for it. And often I find that is enough to motivate people. And of course, the end point of that is when you have enough money, you have enough savings and you've invested them in assets and those assets are paying you and work becomes optional. You get to this point where you're time rich. You get to choose how you spend your time. And that dangling carrot is often enough to get people excited about money. So that's my one tip for you all. Convert this idea of dollars and this endpoint of an amount of money into this idea of being time rich. Make that your goal. It's a much higher aspiration and very individual one because the numbers will be different and our goals will be different, whereas some people don't connect to money as intrinsically. So if you can switch that thinking into what money does for you and it's a tool and, and how you're going to use it best without waste, I think that's got a lot of power. And for all the listeners that are wondering how they can have enough funds in their 20s to take time off from work, how do we find you? And um, I think there's a book, right? There is, absolutely. So um, my business name, Money School, is also the name of my book, Money School. So if you Google Money School, you'll find me. Uh, But if you want to jump straight to the URL, it's moneyschool.org.au. You can grab the book in the library. It's on Audible and all the audio options and eBooks, wherever you like it, because Penguin Random House has distributed it for me. So I haven't had to worry about that side. (laughs) But there is an absolute plethora of authors out there. There are fantastic female finance authors. Can I mention three of them? Is that allowed? Uh, I would love you to, yes. <laughs> Excellent. So look, there's two Australians I want you to go and check out. If you're interested in shares, a lot of people get baffled by shares and get a bit overwhelmed. I'd like you to go and look at Danielle Ikuya's Shareplicity. So great explanation of how share trading works and, and how buying shares and holding them for the long term works, which is what most people would be interested in. I'd also recommend checking out Jessica Irvine's Money Diary for people that are wondering about where their money's going and they want to 
have a diary to work it out. It's much more fun than the spreadsheets I've seen. (laughs) So that's two Australians I'd like you to check out. And then if what I was talking about with being time rich really resonated, um, if you want to try my book, go for it. But if you don't, the the Bible on this one actually comes from America from a lady named Vicki Robin, and it's called Your Money or Your Life. And it simulates this idea of someone put a gun to your head and said, would you like your life or your money? You'd definitely choose your life, right? So how do you reframe that? And how do you get to that point? It's uh, from the early 90s and it's credited with the start of the financial independence movement. So it's a great one to read. When I was editing a magazine and doing various other jobs, uh, we were constantly on the lookout for uh, the female David Koch who could explain uh, finances um, in this in, in such a, a great, complex finances in such a great way. And I was thrilled that when we started FW, we found Lacey Filipich and uh, she is fantastic at doing that. So I fully recommend Money School, her book. Lacey, brilliant to talk money with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. And um, I hope to catch up with you in person soon. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, Helen. And good luck to everybody out there with your money. I wish you well with it. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell. And audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 